What is up, everybody? It's Andrew Undum, real estate agent here in Baltimore with Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. Thank you so much for checking out the podcast. Go ahead and subscribe. I have got a list of guests coming that are gonna really knock your socks off. If you're into real estate, sales, negotiation, marketing, leadership, wealth building, you're gonna wanna subscribe to this podcast. I can't wait to take you on the journey with me here with the Andrew Undum Podcast. Welcome back to the Andrew Undum Podcast where I've been bringing real estate icons um, for some deep interviews. And today I have someone I'm really proud to call a friend, Vince Lisi. I kind of brag that he's on my personal board of advisors as he's helped me with some key investment decisions. But a little bit about Vince, 2022. Uh, first of all, he's the CEO, owner of Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, ambassador real estate in Omaha, Nebraska. 2022, they did over $4 billion in volume, 12,000 units out of one office. They have the number one brick and mortar office for any brand, any real estate company anywhere in North America, 81,000 square feet that Vince still owns. So I'm eager to talk to him more about some investing things. Um, he was ranked number two in Entrepreneurs Magazine for top company culture. That's any company, period, anywhere in the US. So the guy gets culture. He kind of pioneered the mega agent office concept, puts on an incredible event called Explosion, which I've been to. I guess this will be my fourth year in a row. And he also founded the Berkshire Hathaway Mastermind Rethink Council. Um, so Vince, anything I missed in that intro before we dive into your career? No, no, I don't own it anymore. I did sell the company to Berkshire Hathaway about uh, five years ago. I think it's actually five years ago today, to be honest with you, uh, now that I think about it. Um, but I'm still the CEO, still running, uh, still highly involved in it and, and passionate about it. But no, I think the rest of that is, you know, those are all things that we talked about. You know, uh, we're an organization, just a little background of now a little bit over a thousand agents. You talked about us having a mega office, uh, which I'm very passionate about. And we can dive into that a little bit later if you like. Uh, 750 of those thousand agents are here in one location, so uh, which is where I'm office. And so it allows us to see them, our management team, to see them on, on a really daily basis. We still encourage people to come into the office and maybe there could be some conversation about does brick and mortar matter anymore, uh, which I would clearly argue it does uh, on a lot of fronts. So, But know the rest of it. And, and you, you mentioned a little bit about the Rethink Council, something I've always been passionate about, Andrew, which you were on with Berkshire Hathaway is, is making sure that we're attracting younger agents into the industry because that's the lifeline of this industry, quite honestly, right? Uh, is bringing younger people in because younger people are buying houses. You've got to have millennials and now Gen Z who's in the marketplace. And so those are all things that I'm probably uh, very passionate about that love to chat with you on any level about. We're going to talk a lot about, you know, the investing, the masterminding, how you kind of created a culture that's been kind of lusted over throughout all of business. But before we do, you've been doing this for 38 years since 85, if I'm allowed to say that. And yeah, you're one I of those guys. <laughs> well, you have more fun than most people my age. I know that. We're going to get into that too, because I've always said, Vince, not only have you been wildly successful in all these different things, but you just know how to live. You're always having as much fun as possible. You never, I've never heard you be negative or down about pretty much anything. You just attack life head on, which I think is awesome. Um, but how did you get started? Because everyone sees, here's this guy sold his company back to Berkshire Hathaway five years ago. Congratulations, by the way. Still in the game, still leading, still making an impact. Take us back 37 years ago. Where did you come from? Did you go to college? How did you get into the business? Yeah. So uh, my mother was in the real estate business. Um, she started when I was in college a, a brokerage business, Ambassador Real Estate, uh, in uh, beginning of 84 with six other partners. So there were seven of them. Uh, when I graduated from college, I got my license uh, sometime in 85 and started in as a salesperson. Uh, uh, my mother, that within a year, I think it bought out all the partners except one. They, the brokerage business wasn't as fun. They were a bunch of great salespeople, uh, but they weren't making any money. Uh, and when you're not making money, you're not always having fun, right? Uh, and, and so she eventually was a sole owner. Uh, a couple of years after that, I continued to sell. And it was in the early 90s that I started slowly buying into the company uh, with my mother. Still selling, managing a little, but I had to sell because we weren't making any real money. So if I didn't sell, I, I wasn't going to be eating. Um, and so, you know, but I did go to college. I got a finance degree, which kind of you and I've talked a lot in the past about investing. So I think uh, if you're going to run a business, you need to understand the numbers. You need to run it as a successful business person was and, and understanding. I always say numbers don't lie. You know, if you follow numbers from a coaching perspective, from a business perspective, it's going to help you be much more successful 
uh, as you move forward, if you understand those things. So that is my background. Uh, I think I'm, I had a minor in econ and, and a degree in finance. And so uh, I, I kind of a nerd about that type of stuff. Where'd you go to college? University of Nebraska down in Lincoln. Nice. So that's back when they had a football team. <laughs> University of Nebraska. And, and you're in Omaha, so you've been selling. When you joined Ambassador Real Estate with your mom and then she slowly kind of owned the thing, there wasn't a thousand agents in this mega office. No, so, I think when I started, we had, um, oh my God, 18, 20. I mean, it was, it was very few agents. And, and then my mom, unfortunately, did pass away. She got cancer in 94 and passed away in 2001. And so in that time frame, I started managing and, and took the company over right before that in, 20, uh, in 2001 when she passed away from cancer. So, oh, wow. I didn't at that know time, that. We probably, we probably had approximately 100 agents, maybe a little less. So in 94, she got the, the bad news. That's got to be a pretty big shock, especially if her son is your kind of partners at that point. You're doing a lot of the heavy lifting around the office. And then you only had six years and then that was that? Yeah, yeah. So um, she, she lived longer for the state she had than we thought, but it, it was a tough six years. And really the business didn't grow that much during that time frame, to be honest with you, because uh, she was, I had uh, an ex-wife of mine that was having some physical issues also, and she had those. And so, you know, sometimes you got to figure out what's most important. Sometimes life is more important than business. Actually, most times I say life is more important than business. Uh, and the two need to be married together, but you got to make sure you have some sort of balance there and you're figuring out what's the most important things to you. So how did you come from, you know, all that, you know, mental things you're going through and then 2001, you're, you're the sole owner of this enterprise, maybe 100 agents. That's like the size of some teams nowadays. So it's nothing yeah. crazy. Right. And what do you think were the key things that led you to where you are today? Because you've accomplished things that literally no one in the history of real estate have, considering you're the thousand agents in one office. How does that take us through there? Was there any key moments? And I know we're going to hit some principles of your masterminding and your culture and create you because you create such an electric environment. And anyone who's been to your conference knows it. But that doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, there was. My dad still had some ownership. He was never active in it, my brothers and some other people. And, and when I sold it, I basically owned about 75%. And, and dad and brothers and some other people had the other 25%. But they weren't active in it. I was solely managing. So when I, in 2001, I really had to think. I'm like, one is, do I love real estate? Right. And I don't know if I ever said I really loved real estate, to be honest with you. But um, I really had a passion to want to change people's lives. And in my mind... Real estate gave me the opportunity and opened the door for me to enrich the lives of others. And I hope at the end of time, you know, my legacy will be when I'm gone is that people will look back and say, hey, some special part of me is missing now that Vince is gone because he's made my life better or helped me in some capacity. So that's kind of my view of real estate. So it doesn't really matter what business you're in or what you're doing in life, you know, figure out what your why is. Um, so at that time, we weren't making any real money, to be honest with you. I, I was still selling a little you know, just to make a decent income. But I, I thought to myself, you know, we're, we're pretty small. We had some competition, a company called CBS Home. They were 40 plus percent market share. We had a 150 year old company in our market called MP Dodge. They were 20 some percent market share. We were setting, a, I don't know, 4% market share maybe. Um, and I think there was an, a, another broker in the market, Deeb, they might have even been bigger than us at that point in time or, or, or somewhere around that. Um, but I'm like, if we look and act and do and offer the same thing that our competition does, why would you come to work for us? They have more market share, right? They have more productive agents. They, you know, it doesn't make sense to me. So I, I started saying, what can we do to add value to differentiate ourselves from our competition? And if you look back to the end of the, the 1990s, early 2000s, there really wasn't any teams, right? right. Millennials had been born. Uh, from 80 to 96, depending on what years you look at, starting to come into the workforce. And so I started studying generational trends, human behavior, and those type of things. I said, what can we do? So we started embracing teams when teams really were not around. We said, let's be, make sure that we're a team-friendly environment, and then we can uh, help work with those people. Um, and so it just, you know, the other thing is, as I studied this younger generation, it wasn't the 1980s suit and tie generation. Now, there's still people, you dress up still a lot. You look great when you dress up. I'm very casual all the time. I have not worn a tie since 1995, 96. <laughs> uh, and I don't think I've worn a suit. I wore a sports jacket and I wore some slacks, but not a suit since those times. Because uh, I was told by a number of people, including my parents, well, you know, to be successful, you got to wear a suit and tie. Well, I'm kind of a rebel. 
So when you tell me I have to do something, I'm going to try to prove you're wrong to the, to the contrary. So I'm like, we got to be different than others. Let's embrace teams. Let's start figuring out how do we attract younger people into the business because I think that's the lifeline, uh, as I said earlier, of, of the future of the business. Um, but the other thing is I, I decided let's not have meetings at a desk. If I was going to meet to recruit somebody, I want to meet them at a coffee shop for lunch, for breakfast, or at a conference room table. There's this mindset of be approachable, right? It is us. It is not I'm the boss, you're working for me, we are a team. And so you really started seeing as millennials entered the workplace a, a fundamental shift in the mindset of how people thought. And so to me as being approachable, part of that was casual. I'm like, hey, my competition's like, you do not come into our office back in you know 2000 with jeans on. I'm like, you can come to the office with jeans on. I mean, you come and be the unique individual you are. People like you for who you are. Use some common sense if you're meeting somebody for the first time to make a good impression. I'm gonna leave that up to you to decide what that is, right? Have knowledge, show value. People are gonna like you. People like you for who you are. You're basically working your sphere of influence to build relationships in this business. So those are really fundamental. Be approachable. Let people be casual and be the unique individuals they were. Let's figure out how do we start building teams. And then soon after, we started really with accountability groups. You've already mentioned masterminds, and then grew that into mastermind groups. And so that, that last component of that that I thought was really critical was coaching. And really, uh, there, soon thereafter, I started saying, we have two fundamental things. And, and you saw my crazy wall that's painted outside of, of, of my office here in the lobby. Coaching and culture is that we've got to figure out how do we coach, right? How do we help make our agents more productive than other agents through coaching, right? How do we encourage them? Uh, take an attitude of abundance where we're going to say to people, listen, which our whole organization is built on the attitude of abundance, is that we want people to come together in a mastermind group, 15 to 20 people, hour and a half, openly saying, here's what I'm doing. Here's what's working. Here's what's not worked. Learn from the past but not live in the past. Encourage each other. Embrace risk, right? Don't sit around and think things and overthink things. Understand there's going to be some risks, some things are going to work, some things are not going to work. And have this fundamental attitude that the best is yet ahead and there's more than enough for everybody. Because when I put people together in the same marketplace, 15 top producers that sometime are going to compete against each other for the same listing, right? Oh, yeah. They're like, well, I don't want to share what I'm doing or what I'm saying because then they're going to do that and I'm going to lose my competitive advantage. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It has been proven. That when you have an attitude of abundance and you share with each other, everybody's collaborating, everyone's idea sharing, everybody becomes better in that process. Everybody walks out of this meeting an hour and a half later with an idea or two that they can embrace into theirs and we're going to all grow together. That right, there's no 15 agents in a market of, you know, we got a market of 3,100 agents here. There's no 15 to 20 agents that have 10% market share, 5% market share. So if, if you have a great a great group that has 2% market share, that leaves 98% of the market for you still to compete against. Sometimes you'll win, sometimes the other person will win, but at the end of the day, everybody's going to improve and become better in that process. And so the coaching was critical, and the last part was culture. And, and culture to me really is what led me to build my first office in 2004, which is a 32,000 square foot office building, which we thought was crazy back then because we only had 100, I think 20 agents when I started building that office, under maybe. 30 or 40, it was, it was under 150 for sure, is I'm like, I believe cultures and business are best friend if I can put everyone together in one environment, right? There's economies of scales financially. I always want you to look at things financially, right? If I, I, had same, I, had, I had other brokers that had the same number of agents that had four or five or six offices. They had four or five or six receptions. They had more copiers, right? They had, they had to have more staff. There was no economies of scales with that. But the second part of that is not the financial part of the economies of scales, it's the culture. Right. I believe if you're building stronger relationships, the more you see somebody, the more you're talking to somebody. Right. The deeper that relationship goes, you have, you can control that. If you have five offices with 500 agents or you have one office with 500 agents, you have one culture in the 500 agent office. You have five cultures in the five 100 agent offices. I would rather be dependent on me or my team in the one office creating one great culture versus worrying about having five different offices that I create. Now, we've grown to a thousand agents. We do have another four or five offices now. Um, but we still tell them, it doesn't matter what manager's in your office, you can reach out to any of us. So that was really the fundamental base of where we are. Create a great culture. And to me, a great culture is filled with energy, excitement, enthusiasm, where people are encouraging each other. 
and there's just basically a positive attitude and passion that goes through. There's a law of attraction when you bring energy and excitement to people. People want to be around passion. People want to be inspired. So we wanted that culture to be there. And that's how we were fortunate enough to win a number of national culture awards uh, being recognized as one of the best company cultures in, in the United States. Um, uh, and then the coaching part is, is and, and I tell people the two are married, Andrew, that you can, we can have a great culture. We've got a workout facility. We got a game room. We got, we got beer. Um, this can be the funnest place to work in the world. But if we can't coach you and help you make a lot of money, you shouldn't work here. We can maybe be the greatest coaches in the world and we can make you a ton of money for you. But if it's not a place you enjoy coming to work, you shouldn't be here. To me, the two need to live together if you want to create an organization that's going to continue to grow and thrive as we move forward. So how did you pull all this off? Because it was, you know, oh, one, you, you had these thoughts like, hey, I liked how you said, you know, you looked at the generational trends. We got to get with millennials. Here's what my competition's doing. I'm going to do the opposite almost in terms of right. attire and how you're interacting with them. And, but how did you start executing that? Because from that day when you were just, yeah, we got 100 agents. We're going to do things differently. Well, clearly it worked. Like, like paid off in spades. You're still one of the few people who've actually pulled that off, like the, the mega office concept. People try to do it, but if you don't have the culture and the coaching married together with a visionary leader who's really driving it, because you're the kind of brainchild behind the whole thing. If you take you out of the equation, I'm not sure how, how that culture holds on um, yeah. as, as intensely as it has. Well, but how'd you execute it? One is we started hammering on, listen, we're gonna give you the opportunity to take and grow your business to the next level. People are not building teams right? There's reasons to build teams, financial reasons. Don't do it for an ego reason. We got a lot of people that build teams around the country for ego. That's stupid. Don't, if you're going to come to me, you're never going to get advice from me to build anything for your ego. That's, that's just makes no sense, right? So the, the primary reason you should build a team is to grow your business, to make more money. But the other thing, when we talk about coaching, people are often confused. They think we're talking, Andrew, just about working more hours, making more money and being more successful. And while we want you to be more successful, make more money, it's not about working longer hours. We actually are talking coaching as part of how do you have better balance in your life? Well, that's one of the reasons you would join a team. So some people are joining teams because they're young and they're hungry and they're saying, I want to make a lot more money. I want to grow to this next level, right? And they're, they're still putting in crazy hours. There's other people that are saying, hey, you know what? I want to make more money or the same amount of money, but I want to maybe have more balance to do more vacations, to be with my kids, to do my hobbies, the things I'm passionate about. So we just started really hammering. Nobody was talking about teams. We're like, listen, we're team friendly. Here's a structure that we have that's going to help you grow your business. This is going to help you make more money. But we want you to have a better quality of life, right? We want you to live with intention, and we want you to have more balance in your life. People hadn't heard that message in our marketplace. And quite honestly, as I spoke around the country, in most marketplaces, they weren't talking about that. They were still kind of boss, and everyone else followed what they did. And we're like, we're your partner. We're your team. Let's do these things together. So that was that was a big fundamental shift. And we did attract younger agents. And younger agents were easier to get excited. They were hungry. Um, and so we were really focused after this. And we found as this has continued to go 20-some years later that that still happens. Our younger agents, we almost always, if you're under 27, 28, we're almost always saying, go join a team first. Your likelihood of being successful and being in this business is much greater joining a team. They're on a more of a daily basis going to be able to hold you accountable, be that extra coach, that extra mentor, right? And drive your business to the next level. We as managers can help you, but not hold your hand on a daily basis like a team's gonna have the ability to do that. So we really dove into those things that had not been common in the marketplace before. And we really were focused on trying to, how do we attract younger people to the business that well, were just full of passion and energy. It's still maybe not that commonplace because what I'm hearing is you really put that whole personal development spin on the career that's all, it's fun, you know, Tony Robbins here and there, like everyone likes to fire people up, but you took that as part of the business. It's not just their production, it's the person. How right. do we get you what they want? And what's unique about Vince, you can probably hear it in the passion in his voice, is he lives this stuff. Like even when you do your events, I still have the handout for like Dr. Amy. You're like, I want you guys to be taking care of your brains out there. I just learned all this yeah. stuff. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. I'm into that. Here's how you should be managing your time. I wouldn't be, you know, hammering that much caffeine because Vince cares about people. And that is so, that never goes out of style, but it's also so rare. Yeah. And I'm just, I'll raise my hand as the first one. Like, man, I know I need to be better at that with my people. So I'm like, why are the numbers are down? The market's low. We got we to gotta hustle up. But that's what everyone else does. That doesn't really create the culture long-term that's sustainable where people stick with you because they love but you. Andrew, what you understand, which is part of the coaching, is put systems in place, 
create good daily habits, right? Here's what's always drove me crazy in this business. Not very hard in this business, if, if you have any skill set at all, to make six figures. Right. But I always tell people when I'm meeting with them, I'm like, listen, if you, I'll point out at a build, building across the street, I'm like, if you worked in, in this business or that business, and someone says, I'm going to pay you $120,000, $150,000 a year, and they told you an hour and a half to two hours a day, you're going to have to do business growth, revenue generating, prospecting activities to grow your business, to make income for us, to pay you the salary, and you maybe will get a bonus on top of that, and you did not do that, what would happen? They would fire your ass, right? <laughs> but in our business, what's the problem, Andrew? And this, and my coaching sessions very often, I says, I says, now, I said, you know what the problem is? I says, the problem is you've got a really shitty boss. And I said, now you know who your boss is? It ain't me, it's you. You gotta look in the mirror, right? You've gotta create the habits. You gotta, we're gonna help you put systems in place. We'll get you CRM systems, we'll do these things. But ultimately at the end of the day, when you put a system in place, when you create good daily habits, an hour to two hours of prospecting business growth, revenue generating activities daily, five days a week, my God, that's a powerful tool. And you can take your business to the next level. You understand how to build relationships with a system and you add value and gain knowledge, the sky's the limit in this business. It's the systemizing thing. I love what you just said about you have a really shitty boss and you know who your boss is? It's you. You're yeah. always the problem in this business. If you really want to own it, like what Mark Stark would always say is blame versus responsibility. Take responsibility for everything because blaming is not going to get you anywhere. But I yeah. love the line. Um, I forget where I heard it, but I've used it multiple times. You, maybe I heard it from you. <laughs> Walked into the sales meeting and said, guys, you know what? Great news. Everyone's getting a raise. Everyone's getting a raise. It becomes effective the day that you become effective because that's the business we're in. And the other thing I heard is you're systemizing things. Can you systemize the daily habits? Everyone knows what they should be doing, but it's not systemized. And what I've realized is I can't really manage people. No one can really manage people, but you can manage the system which manages the people. So if you build that system right, and then you just say, hey, it's not you're not failing. It's, it's the, you're not working the system. As, as an agent, you in this role, you're not doing it. So yeah. that's, that's the key. And, and how long does it take to create a habit? You got some people argue 21 days. I think it's about three months, to be honest with you. But if, but if you get someone hungry and you can help put a system in place and then you can get them through three months of doing daily activities that are going to help them have a pipeline of business and grow their business, then they're going to be on a path to get where they need to go. But they have to want it themselves. I mean, unfortunately, this is a business of have and have nots. And the primary reason in my mind it's a business of have and have nots is because You've got to be self-disciplined enough to say, I want this bad enough to do what I need to do. And the first thing you got to do is, is a little things. The great thing about this business is it, when I'm interviewing someone to be an agent, I don't even ask them, do you have a college degree? Right. I mean, that doesn't even matter to me. I want to know what their passion is. I want it, And I ask them, I'm like, are you coachable? Right? I mean, nobody wants to be held accountable, Andrew. Right. But they do know if they have any brains that at the end of the day, if they are held accountable, right, with the right systems in place, with the right coaching in place, they're gonna be more productive and they're gonna have a better life. And that's the reason we do, a lot of things that we do in mastermind groups when we start them out is we do dream boards. Oh yeah. Um, can you go grab that dream board over there for me? I got my system set here. And why do we do dream boards? I, one is I want people to get to know each other better in the group that they maybe don't know. But two is it's scientifically proven, right? Write your goals and read them every day. Visualize. What's important? There's always common things on dream boards. You know, I want to I want to take a vacation. I want to do this with my kids, right? It's faith, family, money, goals, um, uh, vacations, all of these type of things. Or get to know and you, health, right? You find out what's important to people, and it makes other people think about things. And when I see people doing that, all of a sudden, parents are engaging their kids and having the whole family do the dream board together, so they understand, honey, here's why I go to work, so we can do this or we can do that. It allows you to build things together, but you've got to understand this is back to human behavior, right? If you visualize what you want to do, you understand why you're doing it, it makes it easier to do. Well, it's, it's no wonder that you, your people are so vigilant, vigilantly in support of you and they want to follow you because you're a true leader. And it keeps coming back to you just care about people and helping them get what they want and live their passion. It's semi-absent in most business cultures because it's all about the numbers and the profit. But I'd be remiss to say it's not just that. You have the blend, just like you beautifully explained. You have to have the coaching and the culture. 
Well, just because you have the culture and the coaching, but you're also a guru with the numbers. You don't, you don't build, let's, we're going to transition to an investing here. So I think one of your, when you're in your real zone of genius, one is when you're speaking and you're inspiring people because you're just an inspiring guy, but it's, you're so good at investing and making sure people are on the right path with the investing front. I mean, you're, you're buying and buying, building lots of commercial real estate and that's a whole chess game that you have to be very well versed in or you will get burned. You've climbed today that mountain. Today more than ever. <laughs> oh, today more than ever. And if you've done the lots, the land development, uh, other businesses, how did you get so involved in investing? So I imagine most of your time was, okay, I'm building ambassador, wildly successful. I'm so focused on the culture and you let everyone be them and you coach so many people. You don't charge for it. You're just, that's part of the culture. Like, hey, right. that's part of the deal. You're with me. I'm here to help you. So you give so much of yourself in those areas. How did you become such a savant investor? And let's just, can we tell everyone that 81,000 square foot building that you're in right now, you own it. You sold your company. Guess what? He still owns it. It's got a gym. It's got a parking garage. It's got the game room. We've got ping pong tables. It's the most beautiful office. And if you haven't been there, you got to come to Omaha, Nebraska. But how do you pull these things off, Vince? So one, as I would tell you, and I really push this to younger people, is I wish I would have started investing sooner. Even though I had a finance degree, I didn't really, because nobody was pushing it, right? And, and the problem that I see in the real estate industry is a lot of people make a lot of money, but they're, it's more important to have a nice car, a bigger house, more vacations, right, than it is to invest for the future. Um, when it really dawned on me is, is when we were renting our office space before I built the 32,000 square foot building, I'm like, this is crazy. We've been in this building the last 10 years paying this building off for this guy. I'm like, if we're going to pay, if we're going to pay rent, let's build a building and let's pay ourselves and let's own an asset at the end of time here. Right. Right. And so that's where I really started doing that. And then, and then we started surrounding ourselves with, we got Fred Tishire and other people here in our organization talking about buying single family houses, right? It doesn't have to be an office building. People can go out and buy single family houses. You can flip them. You can, you can, I, I like the long-term aspect more than, more than the flipping is make it, you know, uh, the, the tax gains, the depreciation, the appreciation, all those type of things. But really, that's when the light bulb went off, like, I need to do more of this. I started investing, I guess, right before that with some other friends that were doing office buildings. I put $100,000 into this building, 100000 that building. I started seeing the returns that they were getting on that. And I'm like, well, let's do some of this myself. And, and then you just have to, you have to study because you do have to make sure you're in the right locations. In today's world, if you're in an urban market with an office building, you might be in trouble. I think if you're in B minus C spaces, you might be in trouble. Uh, so you've got to be very strategic about where you're at to make sure in the office world, because a lot of people are questioning that uh, the world has changed because of COVID. But and, and then then, you know, in college, I didn't really learn about, you know, uh, internal rate of returns and stuff like that. I did, but you never you weren't applying it. So it's not you're not really utilizing it. Once you start utilizing that, you say, OK, what's a cap rate? What's a rate of return? You know, how does a, how do apartments different than than office buildings and so forth. Well, then you start, the more knowledge you have, the more understanding you have, the better decisions you make in the process. So I, you know, I sit down with people all the time, a couple times a month at least with some of our agents, looking at their investments and talking about what they're worth or what they should do. And, and you know, you need to be sure in the office buildings you're getting 2% bumps and, and stuff like that. So I don't know. Dude, you've helped so many people. I don't love for it, Andrew. You do love, and look, I know I've talked to so many people in your organization now that I've been around for, I guess, three, maybe four years now. And I hear the stories with Briley and Maley and, oh, I, well, what do you do? You call Vince. Everyone knows you call Vince and let's look at this deal. I had a deal come across my, this was like a year ago. I sent yeah. it to Vince. I said, Vince, I know you're busy. Dude, do you have time to look at this with me? The guy drops what he's doing. He walks me through the whole thing. Remember, you're like, do you really know what a cap rate is? Like, I knew the tech. I didn't really. IRR. He broke the whole thing down for me. And forever, even if I'd never come to you again, which I will, um, I'm like, dude, that guy just gave me like serious unpaid consulting and helped me make a really wise decision. Now, you know, Vince speaks nationally at commercial real estate investing functions, and we're not going to go through the whole thing on the depreciation, all the numbers to look at, the internal rate of return, the cap rates, the depreciation, the cost segregation, because that's a separate podcast. And that's we could talk for three hours and you really wouldn't even be able to scratch the surface of what this guy's looking at on a daily basis. But I do think it would be a fun story to share. Tell us about the, you built the mega office, this 88,000 square foot building and just Google it. Google Berkshire Hathaway home services, ambassador real estate. You'll see this giant almost looks blue depending on the light hitting it glass building. It's the most incredible office. 
Um, I believe you guys still occupy 75,000 square feet if you count mortgage and title. Yeah, we have, yeah, counting title and mortgage, we have 75,000 square feet of 81,000 square feet. So where did, so you, you did the deal with the 32,000 and you said, geez, I like the efficiencies. If you remember back, he said, yeah. look, let's just get all these. I think the culture will be better. The efficiencies will certainly be better. And we can pull this off if our culture's right and the coaching's right. And in the office, you know, we're not going to have time to show the tour, but every single un- office is unique. It's all about, hey, you as the agent, make this your own space. You can walk into right. one and it's all about sports and memorabilia and this guy's into music. And it's like, it's not a cookie cutter office in any sense of the word. Every single corner is kind of different and it's painted with kind of the soul of the person who occupies the space. But aside from that, because that's just culture and that's why it works, probably right. one of the reasons you were a great acquisition target. And again, five years, uh, congratulations on your exit there. But when, when did you decide, I'm going to build the biggest real estate office in North America, period, because that's a kind of a risk. Like if that doesn't work, you're erasing a lot of gains. <laughs> it, it, it is a risk. So one is you better believe in yourself and your ability to grow. So the, it goes back to on a smaller scale, when we did the 32,000 square foot building, I'm like, we're going to occupy this 100% ourselves. So 16,000 on the first floor, we took them immediately. We only took half of the second floor. And I'm like, okay, we're going to grow into the second half of this over the next couple of years. So I'm sitting here for two, for two years with open space, not finished off. We did the same thing here. I'm like, okay, we're going to finish the first floor with title and brokerage. The second floor is going to be 100% um, uh, brokerage. And then I put two mega teams up on the third floor and the rest of that floor was vacant. I'm like, we're going to grow into that last 15,000 square feet. We might lease out um, five to 10,000 square feet of it, but we turned down some 20,000 square foot leases of wanting the, that top floor because we're like, no, that's for us. So one is you you better make sure that you've got a plan in place and believe in yourself uh, to know that you can grow into that. So I'm like, if we're going to do this, I don't want to run out of space. So let's not build a 50, 60,000 square foot building. Let's build it 81,000 square foot building. But really, I saw it as a great investment. And we we believed in ourselves. We had a, a, so much momentum at the time we built this building that we really believed in our ability to continue to grow into the space, to be honest with you. And what um, year so, did you build that, Vince? We occupied this, I want to say 2014, which means we probably started building it in Started probably, it was a two-year process by the time you're done with the architects, buying the ground, designing the building, and building it out. So probably 2012, it had, been, it had clearly been over 10 years ago that we started it. And I would say probably, the I think it's January 14, we probably moved into here, if I'm not mistaken. And just for the inside baseball, I just have to know myself, that, was, that, that was before you were Berkshire Hathaway. We had just, um, I think we started planning on building it before we were Berkshire Hathaway. It was still Prudential. Yeah. I think we affiliated with Berkshire Hathaway in 13. So the planning would have started before Berkshire Hathaway. We would have been a, a franchisee, franchisor relationship with Berkshire Hathaway by the time we finally would have moved into the space. Yeah, that's an incredible bet on yourself. You, I just love guys who bet on themselves. And you heard what Vince said. You better believe in yourself. You better believe you can grow or else you're just dead in the water. You would never even, you would never even get the plan. You better have a plan, that, right? Believing is great, but you better have a plan that can get you there also. Well, I think, I see, I didn't know that because look, you're in Omaha, Nebraska. That's the home of Warren Buffett. And, yes. and they let, when they acquired Home Services of America, acquired Prudential, it was kind of cool that Berkshire Hathaway let us use the name, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. Yeah. But you were already ripping at that point. So even if it stayed prudential, you would have built that building and that you just would have carried on with your plan. The plan was already there. Yes, we were substantially growing. We'd clearly outgrown our 32,000 square foot building. So we needed to go to a a bigger building. Well, we talked a little bit about investing. And again, I don't want to beat that horse to death. We talked a little bit about masterminding. um, And you kind of pioneered the mastermind framework at Berkshire Hathaway, which is the Rethink Council, which is an awesome experience. If anyone gets a chance to do it or apply to be on it, the coolest part is you get to essentially become friends with guys like Vince, and he's bringing in quality people like Jimmy Burgess, our mutual friend, and his top agents. Now, why do you think that mastermind concept is so important? You talked about it before about, hey, look, it's just abundance. But where's the magic in it? Because I've been a part of a bunch of them that sucked, and I'm in a couple now that I think are really good. So I think it's gotten a bad name over time because it's an abused word almost. It is. So we started them out as accountability groups with five to eight people in them, and it was mainly agent-driven. 
And so I will tell you, one of the most important things is I set in 14 mastermind groups every month, hour and a half each one, is you have to have leadership in there to facilitate making sure that everybody participates. What I found is on the accountability groups that we had initially, it typically became one or two strong personalities. It's Andrew and Heidi in with six or seven other people. They're the most successful. They have the most knowledge. They're the strongest personalities. They're doing all the talking. They feel like they're not getting anything out of it. Everyone else is absorbing that and it falls apart, right? So we put like production type people together, but the key is I have a manager and myself sit in every mastermind group to make sure that everyone understands. Is one of my very first speeches is we're gonna go through the attitude of abundance, which I explained to them why that works. But then I'm like, listen, everybody's gonna participate. Everybody's gonna idea share. Everyone's gonna collaborate. Everyone's gonna bring materials of what they're doing. We're gonna figure out who's best at video and who's best at drones and who's best at social media and who's best at listing presentations. And we're gonna have each one of you share what you do so everyone in this process gets better. But when I sit there and I see one or two people are doing more of the talking, then I sometimes politely, sometimes not, have to shut them down to make sure that everybody's gonna participate. And so one of the things I'll typically do is what I'll call a Darren Hardy approach is, Darren Hardy says focus on the few, not the many, right? The super achievers in the world focus on two or three things at a time, not 10 or 15 things at a time, and they do them very, very well. They understand their strategic strategies, their focuses, their priorities, and they nail them. And so I'll walk through in most meetings uh, and say around the table, what's one thing? So they know to come, what's one thing I'm focused on right now to grow my business? I'm working on client appreciation parties. I'm, I'm doing this with my CRM system. I'm working on retooling my um, listing presentations, my marketing tools, something like that. I always want them, what's one thing that I'm doing that's a business growth activity that's gonna help move the needle for me? Stay intentional on things. And when you come to my conference or any other conference, I'm like, listen, you're gonna have an array of notes. You got pages of notes. Go through those notes and figure out two or three things you can go implement in your business now. Do those great and then go back and do others. I don't want you ever doing 10 things at once. Focus um, on the few, but, not the many. Focus on the few, not the many. But I would tell you the mastermind group has to have a leader. It typically can't be a, an agent that's facilitating everybody. That's bringing information of here's what's going on in the economy. So I'll talk a lot about here's what's going on with the economy, you know, and give some financial background on, on what's going on even outside of real estate. But I, I, you got to make sure everyone's participating. Everybody's presenting. Everybody's part of that group. And um, I imagine take, take it serious. They got a plan around this. You're going to know a month in advance. Megan Owens, I just saw who you know, just popped her head in and said hi as we were doing this. You know, how does Megan, an individual with one assistant, do 150 deals a year and shows up at the mastermind group every month? Because she understands there's value in it. She doesn't have a showing magically at that point in time where my agent that has eight deals a year has a showing or listing presentation at nine in the morning. That's crazy. They can plan around that if they become better at what they do. Yeah, well, that's funny because you're just kind of answered my question, which was going to be only the top people like this. Because if you're not itching to grow, if you don't want to get better, if you're not thirsty and hungry to pull the best ideas out of other smart, respectable people, well, only the top people want that. So it's funny you mentioned that. So I bet your low producers are the one that they say they want in, then they don't show up and they wash out and they don't participate. But your top people are probably, they're the ones that are all in because they never stop growing. They've got a passion. I, I want to tell you a quick story, Andrew, a little off subject, but I think it's related about passion versus money, right? When you go to business schools, I, I, I saw this, it's been 10, 15 years ago now, I saw it. I guarantee this is still true though. Um, and when I was at Google once, I asked these three kids this exact question is when you leave with your master's degree for the business, they ask the question, as you go into the real world now, something to the extent of what's more important, do you make a lot of money or do what you love and chase your passion? And then they go back five, 10, 15, 20 years later to see where those people are in their life. And the study shows that 10, 15 years later, the multimillionaires are like 10 to one people chasing their passion and what they love. And I started thinking about that and that's not very hard to understand why that is. Because if you're passionate about what you're doing and you love what you do, what happens? You put in more time, energy, and effort. It doesn't seem like work, right? And the byproduct of being passionate and putting in more time, energy, and effort is you're more successful and make more money. That's so when you're doing something just for the sake of making money, I've seen this historically, and I was at Google, there was three kids hosting us, and I asked all of them, I said, why, why are you here? Are you doing this because you love what you're doing and you think you're making a difference in the world? 
Are you here because, um, and, and Rod was with me. Rod was one of the people in this group. There's like 12, 13 people. I was facilitating an innovation group for, which is your broker, for those oh, who yeah. don't know. I mean, Rod just reminded me a year ago of this. He says, I remember when you asked those three kids, he says, and two of them immediately says, I'm here because I feel like I'm making a difference and I love what I'm doing. And one person said that, but he hesitated. And it's like, I don't think he really believes that, right? So I will tell you, that's the reason I always say, figure out what your purpose is. What, what are you doing this for? You may not love work. You may not love selling real estate. But if that's the vehicle that's helping you do things with your family, your passions, your hobbies, it becomes easier to love it because you now understand what the end result of that is. Well, you're like myself. You're a big Steve Jobs guy. Yes. You, you take the best of both the, the Apple approach and the Google approach, which you, I want you to tell that story too, because that's mm -hmm. a really cool, um, you know what I'm talking about? You told it out. I, I, I know the story. I know the All story. Right. But before you get to that story, what Steve Jobs always says is, if you're not passionate about this, there's no way you can ever be successful because it's too hard. And any rational, normal person would give up. You should give up. This stuff is so hard. The nights, right. the weekends, the risks you're taking, you're staying up late, you're putting your name out there, you're the one who's going to fail. If you're not loving it and you're not passionate, there's just no other way. So you're not going to find any massively successful business without a founder or a group of people behind it that really believe in what they're doing. Oh, almost impossible to become great without having a, a passion. And you know what I find is what keeps me passionate, because sometimes I'm all in and then it's all in the summer months. I got three kids now. We're going to the beach. I'm like, oh, man, I got to go back. We got to service these listings. We got to get onboard these agents. Not everything has to be, you know, perfectly fun all the time, but it's hanging out with people like you. It's being in these masterminds. I'm looking forward to coming out and going to Explosion. And just <coughs> being involved in that with that type of mindset is what keeps my passion going. Just doing this. I don't have to do this. This is kind of a job. I had to schedule. We have to buy some equipment. I love doing this because it feeds me. It's it's more passionate because I'm learning. I'm taking, I got three pages of, of notes um, about those. Okay, I'm going to call them accountability groups with a leader facilitating them that's not an agent. You see, that's that's a game changer for me because I'm trying to create what Vince creates. And maybe you should too if you have a team or an office or a culture. Because not like he just came out one day and said, nope, this is, this is how it is at Ambassador. No, 2001. Shit, I got to do something. And you work at it and work at it. But tell the story of Google and Apple because I'm a kind of an Apple fanboy. If you don't have an iPhone, you're not in our group. You're not almost allowed on the team. You're not. We don't do droids. But go ahead. I, I, I did all my managers at Apple except my brother. And and I was tired of when I was on a plane. I'm trying to do a text. I can't text with him, but I could text with everybody else. I'm like, okay, damn it, you're messing up all our group texts. Go get an Apple. With that being said, I, I was fortunate enough, Prudential, back in 2010 and 11, probably. Um, it asked me to facilitate an innovation group with them. We went to MIT. We went to Google a couple of times. We went to Yahoo, uh, some pr very cool places. The second time I went to, to Google was in New York City in the meatpacking district. And this was a month or so before Steve Jobs died. So I don't know what that was, probably 2011, if I'm not mistaken. I could be a year off on, on my dates here. And there was probably 50 people or so in the room. There was four of us from Prudential at the time. There was an executive Prudential, myself, um, and, and two other uh, brokers that we had invited, uh, Remax, Cobble Banker, Keller Williams, Century 21. Everyone had three or four or five people in the room. Everybody signed confidentiality agreements. And so we had different leaders of different divisions of Google getting up and talking to us. And the guy gets up and he says, you know what? Everyone thinks we hate Apple. He says, we don't hate Apple. He says, we have the greatest respect for Apple. He says, because of competition and people like Apple, we will always become we will always become better, right? Because there's always somebody pushing us. And so the, the moral of the story, number one, is competition's a good thing. Competition, if we're paying attention to what competition's doing, right, that should allow us to sharpen our tools to become better in that process. They're going to push us. We're not going to become successful and say, oh, let's just keep doing the same old, same old, because if we're not changing, we know we're not growing and we're dying, right? So competition's good. But he goes on to say something that I found very intriguing. I came back, my next sales meeting was exactly what this guy said. He says, listen, there's two fundamental differences between us and Apple. He says, Apple would not ever do what we're doing here today. Have outsiders come in, confidentiality agreement signed or not, and say, here's some things we're working on. What do you think about this? They don't want the input of outsiders. And maybe this has changed over the last 12 years. I don't know. They're not looking for the input of outsiders. They're going to do something. They're going to roll with it. You know, they got to believe it perfect, it's perfect, and they're going to roll it out. And then that's the second part of it. They're like, Apple doesn't roll anything out, right? They don't get outside information. They internally decide what they're going to do. We're going to design the iPhone. We're going to design the iPad. We're going to design all of these type of things. We're going to tell you 
right? You, uh, the the why, Simon Sinek's why. He, he uses right. Apple as a perfect example there. He says, but the second thing is, one is we don't ask outsiders, and two is, you know, Apple doesn't do anything until they believe it's perfect. We're going to do things. And I don't remember what it was. I think Google Hangouts and a couple of different things they were rolling out right then. They said, you know what? Some of these might not work at all. None of these are going to be perfect. And we know that as we go through this process, we're going to, we're going to do these, right? Because we're not going to sit until we wait until it's perfect. We're not going to not do something for the fear of failure. We're going to roll these out and we're going to continue to tweak them. And if they're not working, then guess what? We're going to be in the two-way door. We're going to get out of it as soon as possible so we don't invest too much time, money, and effort into it. And with the ones that work, we're going to continue to change and change and change and change and tweak until it becomes great. I came back and I said, that is who we are. That's my personality. I walk down the hall making decisions. Sometimes I make bad decisions. Thank God we make more good ones than bad ones. But we always honor what we say. And I say, listen, guys, this is who you need to think like. We as an organization are going to think like Google thinks. We're going to make more wrong decisions than all of our competition combined. But we're going to make more right decisions than all of our competition combined because we're not going to sit on the sidelines for the fear of failure. We're going to do things. When I came back from MIT that same year, they're like, listen, you guys don't get it. you got to be doing QR codes in the fashion industry in New York City and in Europe. These are hot things. We tried QR codes. Well, they didn't work so good back in 2010, 2011. You know, COVID, now everybody and their mother uses QR codes. But we weren't going to not try them because someone's saying, oh, it's not going to work because of a naysayer, or we're not going to wait till we've perfected the process. And I see that so often with real estate agents and business people that I consult with, is they, they think, they rethink, they analyze, they overanalyze to a point where they become nonproductive. So I'm of the opinion, do something, understanding it's not going to be perfect, set that expectation. If you set an expectation with somebody up front that we're going to do something, we know it's not perfect, but we're working towards making it better and better and better. You've now set that expectations, and that gives you the ability to continue to move forward with those type of things. And if the things that don't work out, it's okay. You've set those expectations also. So philosophically, that has been my mindset running the business ever since that day I was in New York City with Google. Well, it's funny. As an Apple guy, you know, I want a product that's perfect. Okay, I want them to think it's perfect. But if you're operating a business in the crazy world of real estate, and our world is changing, and we can talk a little bit about the market. Um, we've been rolling for 50 minutes, but I do want to ask you some personal questions about your vibe and your, your vision going forward. Because you've called a lot of things right, even since I've known you. Um, but that's the right mindset. Is you, Analysis paralysis kills almost everybody on everything. I see it. People don't even want to call the leads in their CRM because they don't have the perfect script. It's like, dude, you just do it. Right. Anyone who thinks they can learn to do something any other way other than physically doing it is kind of shortchanging themselves. So like you said, the textbooks, you can read everything. I can know everything about commercial real estate from the, the latest uh, textbook, but that doesn't mean shit until it's my money and it's due on this date and here's the return. Then it becomes real because you're living it. So getting out there and just that rapid fire stuff, I just love. Yeah. One, one last thing on the Google thing is Google's respect for Apple was so great that they had a lady that got up in, in charge of marketing at the time. And she showed us a commercial. She says, I believe the greatest commercial in the history of time was played once and only once. And it was in 1984 at the Super Bowl introducing the Macintosh where the lady from Rocky 17 or whatever Rocky comes through and throws the same through the screen and says, you know, the world will be changed forever. So, I mean, I, I want people to also understand competition. Understand what your competition is doing. Understand why your clients maybe are, are want to do business with them and then figure out how do you take your own personal style and embrace some of the things that they're doing. Don't be them, right? Look at what they're doing well and maybe embrace those things. Look at what they're not doing well and, and don't fall into those traps. I mean, that's all I've ever done is I go find things that I see in other people that I like and I say, oh, I'm going to take that from him. I'm going to use that from her. Oh, we got to do this like that. And that's all everyone's doing. There's not a million, you don't have to create the next iPhone to have a really unique passionate business you just have to find the right pieces and put together your own mosaic and it's you and that's where the, you're going to be passionate about it um you know the other the other what i think the best commercial is just side note that is that won all the awards the 1984 apple commercial when they throw the the thing through the screen because 1984 george orwell is perfect timing but the one and i know you love this commercial too vince because it's on your wall Vince in his office, by the way, there's quotes everywhere and these beautiful walls and collages of these awesome quotes. But one of them is the think different. Here's to the crazy, crazy ones. One. Yep. That was a great commercial. My favorite commercial ever. When Steve Jobs came back in 1997 uh, and they did the crazy ones with 
uh, Albert Einstein, Muhammad Ali, Picasso, right? The ones who are crazy enough to think they can change the worlds are the ones who can. That's just, yeah, that's so good. Now, before we wrap this up, I have to know two things. Okay, two things. One is, market's a little wonky right now. Rates at, at the time of this recording here, we're in June 23. We got seven plus percent interest rates. Inventory's slid faster than it's ever slid before, I think over a two-year period. We got, so not many houses for sale. Rates are pretty high. It's almost like the government systematically trying to slow down this particular industry. Um, what do you see happening over the next... 18, 24 months. Give us that Vince Lisi 38 years of ass kick and knowledge here. What's what? I've been wrong a lot the last three years because it's been illogical, the behavior of the marketplace. Um, I think we've got to be realistic. I think the market's going to be down 20 to 30 percent the next year and a half relative to those COVID years of, of right May of 2020 through basically June or July of last year where we had artificially low interest rates, you know, interest rates historically never went below three and a half percent. And all of a sudden we got down to two and a half percent, 30 year mortgages <clears throat> to me, which was a major mistake. I said it back then of the Fed to, to lower that. We're now seeing some banks that are having some issues because they gave long-term loans to businesses and commercial buildings and others for equipment and stuff like that at three, three and a half percent rates. And now they're paying CDs at four and a half percent. Not, not a good business model, right? Um, I think the next year and a half to two years can be tough. I don't think, Inflation is under control. You're going to always have people buying and selling real estate. As you said, we have a low lack of inventory. And why do we have a lack of inventory? We have a lack of inventory because ever since the crash in 2008 and 9, we've not built enough houses in the United States. We've had population growth from babies. We've had population growth from immigration. Yet we did not have enough people became overcautious building houses. So we did not have enough single family houses built in that time frame. One of the reasons we don't have enough inventory, right? We don't have the same amount of labor we had 15, 20 years ago. So we don't have enough labor. We have we have all of these different issues here. So lack of inventory is not going to change. I think house prices are going to hold their own because of lack of inventory. But the truth is, as the interest rates has went from two and a half percent to seven plus percent on a 30 year mortgage, the cost of money's went out. So I, in my mind, in most markets I talk to, Omaha is clearly like this. We have a tell of three markets. In our market, the average sales price is about $310,000. Anything under $350,000, first time home buyers, Maybe a move up buyer, right? That young person, their incomes really went up. They're right. Life altering events is why people are going to still buy houses, right? Had babies, getting married, relocating, moving to an assisted living, right? There's all these life altering events that people do um, of, of why they're buying and selling houses. Um, so I think in our market, 350 below, and you can, depending on the average sales price in your market, you can adjust these numbers up or down. It continues to be strong. We continue to see mobile offers. I think we'll continue to see that over the next year and a half. We're not seeing in our market, 25 or 30 multiple offers, as we saw before, as a general rule, we're maybe seeing five to 10, but still selling maybe over list price, escalation clauses, appraisal gaps, because those people are coming out of rents. While we've not built enough homes over the last 15 years, boy, the apartment markets, the market to be in, in the rental market, right? Single family houses or apartments, because rents have went up every year for the last 15 years. So those people coming out of apartments, you know, they're not locked into a two and a half to three percent interest rate. You know, your family size is growing, your income's growing. Those people up to that price range are going to continue to be vibrant. There's not enough houses there. There's still not enough houses being built there. 400 to 900,000, that's a pretty broad range, but middle America, a lot of dual income. People are dependent on mortgages. They are worried about inflation. They're worried about the economy. They go to the grocery store and like, oh my God, I spent $200 and I didn't get anything. Um, that market's tough. Uh, we, we pull up where the house, you know, in West Omaha, in the suburbs, uh, a year and a half ago, you couldn't find three houses in the market. They'd be gone. They'd be gone. They'd be gone. Now there's forty or there's forty or fifty to go look at. And if you want a five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollar house, um, so that market's tough because those people that are buying those seven, eight hundred thousand dollar houses are typically living in houses. They're not excited about moving another house. They're they're like, let's go remodel our house or or let's you know do something else, but we don't want to walk out of our 3% interest rate into a 7% interest rate uh, to move out of our $450,000 house into a $700,000 house. I think that market's going to continue to be tough for the next year and a half because I don't think we have inflation under control. The Fed's got a tricky situation, in my opinion, is they, they, they had to slow down raising interest rates because we started having bank failures, right? So they got to keep the financial institutions 
healthy, right? So we don't have a run in banks and, and those, no, so that's for, but that's slowing down the getting the inflation under control. So I think the next year and a half, that market's gonna continue to be, I don't see an easy fix for that in the next six to 12 months. I think the next 18 to 24 months, that middle market for most people where they're dependent on mortgages is gonna be a tough market. But I would tell you, rich people are still rich. Now we've seen that slow down in a lot of, a lot of areas. You know, if, if you look at boats and swimming pools, and all these luxury things were going like crazy, right? At the beginning of COVID, well, that's even slowed down there. But rich people are not worried about mortgage rates. So in our market, a million plus, they still, still seem to be selling pretty well. So I think the luxury market is still doing well. Has it slowed down from what it was a year or so ago? Yeah, it's not, we're not gonna be at that same pace. Um, but I think that market will continue to be safe. Uh, people got more money than they've ever had. Uh, and if they're not worried about a mortgage rate, they're going out there and, and they'll still buy that dream home. Because the truth is, we talked about, we always encourage people to come to the office. That has changed. If people are not in the office, people are in their house more than they have in the past. They want it to be the place where, you know, they've got the pool, a, a bigger yard, they're, they're, they're entertaining, they're raising their family there, they're, they're living more there than ever before. So in my mind, you know, the next year and a half, going to be off 20 to 30% of what we had during the, the prime of COVID. But that's still a market where we can do well. But whether you're a team lead, whether you're a broker, whether you're an individual agent, you know, you've got to go out there and get more than your fair share. So you better make sure that you're communicating and building better relationships than you have in the past. And my good friend Ryan Essa says, you know, you cannot be over communicating with people. There's never been a time where we need to communicate more frequently, more frequently with more clarity. Um, and build and nurture stronger relationships than we ever have before, especially in the world we didn't even touch on today of, of technology and AI and how that's going to change things. Uh, AI will not replace the relationships building, but it's going to make it important for us to build much stronger relationships where people trust us. See, Vince, you're just such a wealth of knowledge. I'd love to just come pick your ear, pop by your office, probably why Megan Owens. Shout out to Megan <coughs> Owens, who's always one of the top individual agents in the country, not just in Omaha. She pops in because, look, you can ask Vince these types of questions. What do you think is going on with the market? Off the top, because he studies this stuff. Not only is he spending an hour and a half in 14 different mastermind groups hearing all everything that's going on, you clearly study it. You don't hear many broker owners talking about the luxury market based on cars, pools. That This is overall economics thing. Real estate just happens to be tied up into it. So again, Vince, as a compliment, that's one of the reasons you're great is because you're not myopic. You're looking at everything, the greater world. What's going on? How is this going to impact us? And that it sounds like you've been doing it your whole career because from 01 to where you are now, you don't get there just by being a good salesperson or even by being a good leader. It has to be a combination of a lot of things over a long period of time that you get right. Um, the last thing um, I want to talk about is, is time. So you, you kind of changed, uh, you gave me a little paradigm shift when you're talking about time and you talked about how you spent a lot of your time. Um, you tell agents on how to manage their time and know what they're worth. And you brought this up to the yep. Rethink group. I think it was one of our first sessions. I wrote that down. I said, man, I think I'm smart. How come I never even thought of this? So I think, um, I think we can wrap up with this because I think this is really impactful. If you're an agent, you've stuck around this long on this podcast. This is a nugget you want to take with you. And, it's, and don't take it as lip service. Really write some stuff down and think about it. Because when I go back and look at how I spend my time, it's unbelievable how much time I either waste or I'm just doing things that aren't serving me and my vision and my why. And that suck the life out of me, quite frankly. But Vince, yeah. give us, give us uh, the two cents on that. It's funny you bring that up because just our last sales meeting uh, last week, I talked about, guys, you got to get back to understanding the value of your time. What's your rate of return on your time you're spending and what's the rate of return on your dollar you're spending to make sure that you're investing your time and your dollars wisely. And I always tell people I'm at a point in my life where my time is actually as you get older, this becomes more, uh, is worth a lot more to me than money is to me. And so I always tell people, as a general rule of thumb, if you're making $100,000 a year, your time is worth $50 an hour. If you're making $200,000 a year, your time's worth $100 a year. Well, what's that based on? That's based on working 50 weeks a year, 40 hours a week, 2,000 hours a year. We, I, I, within five minutes, if you tell me, here's how much time I'm not working, Here's how much time I'm working. We figure out the number of hours you work and you divide that into your salary and it tells you what your, your time is worth on an hourly basis. So my point to somebody is if you're, if you're worth $100 an hour and you're spending 10 hours a week or 10 hours a month on an activity, well then it's 10 hours, but people think, oh, it's, it's not costing me anything. No, it's costing you 10 hours times $100. It's costing you $1,000 
per week, per month, whatever the time frame that you're doing it in. So you need to analyze just as you should analyze what's the rate of return on my investment. I'm spending this on Zillow or Realtor or marketing or this. Am I, what am I getting on my client appreciation party? What's my rate of return on that? Well, you need to look at it. And, and to me, it's just important and probably more important. What's my rate of return on my time? Understand the value of your time from a business perspective. And it, then it makes you become more systematic, right? My schedule, I got to look at my schedule, my, my Apple, Google calendars daily. When I plug things in, I get it done. I go to the next thing and it allows me to be able to have some balance in my life. So you got to understand the value of your time. And when you're spending hours on things, understand what is your time worth. And if you're not doing that, you're really missing a, a, a very valuable tool that can help you have a better quality of life and be more successful. Look, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. I, I may have heard something like that. You may have heard something like that before. But if you're catching that at the right time, that can change your life. When I heard that, when I came back, I doubled the size of my admin team. I said, okay, I'm gonna have my full-time videographer. Now I'm gonna hire this guy and all he's gonna do is do my social media. We do a lot of social media, it drives business, it drives clicks, revenue. We, we put out a lot of content. We wanna over-communicate with the market and get attention. And I stopped doing all of it because I was spending an inordinate amount of time. And I know if someone's listening to this, you are too. You're on your phone way too much. You're scrolling, you're posting, you're overanalyzing things. You're trying to make posts perfect like Apple when you should be like Google. Pump it out and see what the return is. And it's not the, the return on ROR, rate of return on your money, rate of return on your time. If you can get those two things in balance, you are gonna be explosive because you can systemize it. Well, I would tell you, because we brought up Megan Owens who popped out here earlier, I mean, I had to hammer on her like, you have to get an assistant, right? So if you're an individual agent and you're doing 30 plus deals a year, here's what I know. You're spending 10 to 20 hours per week doing non-productive, non-revenue generating, non-prospecting, non-business growth activities to give good customer service that you need to be giving to your clients. It's not the highest and best use of your time. My question is, right, you can go hire somebody for 18 to $20 an hour. It depends on the market that, you know, you're, you're in LA or New York, it's gonna be more than that. but in the middle part of the country, you can go hire someone for eighteen to twenty dollars an hour to do these activities for you. If your time is worth a hundred dollars an hour, my question is, why would you not go hire somebody? People are like, well, it costs me more money. No, 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 no. If you're going to spend twenty dollars for simple math, twenty dollars an hour to hire someone to do those things, and your time is worth a hundred dollars an hour, you've just saved yourself eighty dollars an hour, right? It didn't cost you twenty dollars an hour. You now have. You've just freed up 15 hours, right? You're spending 20 hours a week doing something. Maybe they're not as efficient. So maybe you're only saving 15 hours a week. 15 hours a week, five more hours of prospecting, 10 more hours of balance in my life or growing my business, whatever you want to do. So, I mean, but, but like Megan took her business. She was stuck at a level. When she got that assistant, she went from doing 60, 70, 75 deals a year to 120, now 150 deals a year, still for one assistant. Now, I, I've been telling Megan, you need a second assistant because you're probably working too many hours doing some of that type of stuff yourself. But you got to understand, only two reasons somebody's growing their business and they will not go hire an assistant to do these things for them. One is they believe it's costing money, and I just went through why that's a flawed concept. But two is they, they're like, well, nobody can do it better than me, and they have this control freak issue, and they need to get over that. <laughs> that's true. There's a lot of people that fall into the control freak bucket. I still do it on some things. Like, no, I have to do this myself because like, I have to do it. Meanwhile, someone else is way better than you. The other mental kind of model around this is you can accept this if you believe that you can continue to produce if you spent more time doing the right things. Some people don't do it and say, well, no, because I make 100K and I don't know if I could make more, even if I spent more time on it. And that's, that's head trash. Of course you could. Anyone who can make 100 could make 200 if you just double the activities. Free up your time to do it. So yeah. it, that's a beautiful concept. Um, and, and in closing, Vince, I just got to tell you, I've loved getting to know you and and I learned a lot of things I didn't know um, from this podcast. But for a guy out of college, starts selling real estate, comparable for me. Yeah, your mom was in the business, but even you bought in, you hustled, you're selling. You had a hundred agents. That's not a that's not a big business. And you're the no. smallest fish in the sea. You're lucky you didn't just get wiped away, which is what would have happened to most people when you have huge, big competition with a relatively young, semi inexperienced business person. But what happened? What you did with that company? has been absolutely phenomenal. And I can't applaud you more, but not only you had your exit five years ago, which was I'm sure awesome experience for you and your family. You're still here, you're hanging out. We're gonna be hanging out in Omaha and, and um, 
here in August for the Explosion Conference. But look, I know you're obviously you're still passionate about this. You people kind of rely on you. Maybe that's not the best word. People love interacting with you because you continue to help enrich other people's lives. So is there anything we could look forward to? Um, like personally, I'd like to see you doing more events. Why can, Why has it only got to be August in Omaha? Like I know you're in Florida a lot. I see. I follow you. Um, I follow his private jet on Twitter. No, I'm kidding. No, no private jet. Yeah. Um, Delta. Yeah, Delta first class. What is? What else? Is there anything we can be looking forward to in closing? Anything you want to wrap up with? Because you hit us with just so many different things. I'm sure I'm going to get follow-up questions. We'll probably have to do a round two, but... That's what I want to know. What's Vince going to do next? Because you don't really have to be doing much. Yeah, I, I love being in the game. I love the passion of it, to be honest with you. I, I think retirement is, is equivalent to death. So, uh, and, and I have, as you you know, uh, yesterday I was with my partner. We're doing a land development in Costa Rica. And we, we're, you know, we've got land development here. And, and I'm in apartments. And I'm in commercial buildings. And, and uh, actually later today, the late afternoon, I'm going to go look at a, another deal. Um, so I'm a little bit of a deal junkie, but that's what keeps me young, to be honest with you. But I would say, you know, figure out what you love doing, right? Do it great. Um, as Brett Grease said, who was my friend, right, who was a past CEO, he's now a partner in a private equity company at Explosion last year. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's awesome. If, if you're going to do something, do the shit out of it. Um, you know, <laughs> don't do something half-assed. And so build relationships. We didn't even get in relationships. We could do a whole other podcast on relationships and the importance of relationships and what you should be doing to build and nurture relationships to take your life and your business to another level. But it, it's build relationships, understand what you're passionate about, understand what your why is, and focus on having balance in your life, right? Spending time with the people you love, doing the things you love. Um, uh, it's going to make your success in business that much more enjoyable for you. Man, well, I know um, no matter what, whatever, the, how the chapters unfold for you, we're going to be friends. Um, and look, I'm the guys like Vince is, he's looking at deals all the time. You never know if you're nice to him, if you can provide something to the relationship, maybe he'll let you in on a deal one day. There's going to be a point in time and we're going to come back to this Vince. I'm going to say, remember in 23, we did that interview and I called it, I'm going to do a deal with Vince. I don't know what it's on. Hopefully probably commercial real estate, but I don't care what it is. We're going to do some stuff and make some money and have some fun. And we're going to use that to pour back into people around us. Cause that's what makes the world go around. I have a little bit of that in me too, Vince, where um, I'm still at 35. Maybe it's harder to come out because I got three little kids. I got to gobble and do stuff. But there's nothing better than helping helping out other people get to where they want to go because it's the old Zig Ziglar. If you help people get what they want, you'll get what you want. And I think we can all accept that. So. Yeah. And I, I love doing deals. Almost all my deals I have partners in. I love doing deals for things, right? It's just there's an excitement that you do it together with others. Yeah, so, it's awesome. Brother, I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm, we'll be talking soon. Explosion 2023. Be there, be square. I'm out. See you guys. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye.